Welcome to the morning community of Northridge Vineyard. Our deepest desire is that you will encounter Jesus as you listen in to our morning gathering. If you'd like to find out more about us, check out our website, northridge.org.au forward slash mornings. Morning, guys. Morning at home. Um, it's nice to be with you. So um, most of you know me, for those that of you that might be new or you don't, um, if you're tuning in from afar, um, does this feel right? It feels weird. Okay, we're good. Um, my name's Kim Sherlock. I've been a, a member of the community here for some years and <laughs> a long time. And I'm going to share with you a bit this morning. We'll get to the scripture because that's probably the most important bit. But what I wanted to to start by telling you was a little story that God put on my heart as I was studying and preparing for this morning. For those of you that don't know, I grew up uh, on a farm, on a property, um, miles and miles from here um, in country Queensland, uh, slightly west of Toowoomba, slightly east of, of Dolby. It, was, um, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty idyllic. I grew up with a very gentle rhythm of farm life, lots of animals, no people, lots of great wide open spaces and it was lovely and there I remained until I was 12 when I went to boarding school um, and then after boarding school I went away to university and all, always Napdale which was the name of our property was home so there was always a sense that while I was away I was still home was still home and it was always so reassuring and comforting to go home. It felt so natural and I felt so comfortable there. You know, I knew who I was. I knew what was expected of me. I knew how things worked. And so it was always really comforting. But anyway, I, um, I went to university first, at Queensland University, and I studied economics. I got to the end of that and decided that I didn't want to be anywhere that economics was going to take me. Sorry, Russell, if you're here. <laughs> you go, but it was just wasn't for me. So I managed to find myself a scholarship to Bond and I went there and studied law. And on the very first day at Bond, this young man came and sat next to me to chat up the girl on the other side of me. <laughs> but it's okay, he saw the error of his ways. And... Um... <laughs> And eventually, actually 24 years ago today, uh, he asked me to marry him. <laughs> and so that was in 1997, and at the end of that year, we were married. And that was lovely. We had the reception at home on our front lawn, and it was really wonderful. And then the next day, um, I packed up all of my worldly belongings and put them in my little, well, my big brown crown, as it was then. And we headed down the two and a half kilometers of our front driveway, and we hit the bitumen, and we turned south and headed towards Toowoomba, uh, Toowoomba not away from Toowoomba, towards Sydney. And um, it's funny, somewhere along that trip, I remember feeling the enormity of what I'd just done. Um, not marrying, <laughs> not marrying Matt. That was and remains, apart from loving the Lord, the best decision of my life. But I, this sense that I was leaving everything 
familiar to me. And I was heading to a city that I had never in a million years imagined that I would live in the middle of. I was heading to a family and a community that were, and a culture that were very, very foreign to me. And so there was this enormous weight. We arrived in, in Sydney and Fortunately, um, back then, pre-kids and pre-pandemic, we got to come home. I still called it home for years. I still called Napdale home. And we got to go home quite often. And every time we went, um, as we'd leave and we said our God goodbyes, it would usually involve two and a half, three hour trip to Brisbane airport and then a two hour flight from Brisbane to Sydney and then a 40 minute trip back to our little apartment in Narrenburn. And on and off for the entirety of that trip, tears would fall. And I'm, at this point, I'm grateful. I need to say that I'm very grateful for my patient and loving husband who just sat with me and let me grieve in the way that I did because it wasn't weeks, it wasn't months, but it was years before those tears stopped falling. Um, even now, you can tell, <laughs> there's such a special place in my heart for my home. So why am I telling you that today? Well, partly out of obedience, partly because as I was studying and praying about what I would share this morning, that's what the Lord put on my heart. But also, um, it kind of fits, and I'm hoping that you'll see as we get into Scripture in a moment. You know, my, I'm not a biblical scholar, and those of you that know me know that. I have no formal training, but my hope in sharing with you this morning is that as we look at the Scripture, as we see God's heart for us, and I share some of my story, that you might find hope, that you might find encouragement, that you might see God working and that you might hear what he's saying and take some of that. Take some of that as encouragement for your own lives. Kind of the testimony that Adam was talking about last week. And so that's why I'm sharing my story. But I haven't finished. That's not all of it. We're just gonna, I'm just going to ask you to hold on to that for a moment. I'll get back to it in, in a minute. So as Bon mentioned, we are in a series on turning points. We are looking at the turning points of the people of God and what God might be saying to us. And the turning point this morning is a big one. We often look at the Old Testament and we see this kind of seesawing with the people of God. Obedience, disobedience, back to obedience and then disobedience again and some exile thrown in there as well. And so today, where we are picking up the story of God is at the end of their second major exile. They've been exiled in Babylon, um, Nebuchadnezzar came and finally destroyed Jerusalem, took all the artifacts and the goodies from the temple and the, the I hate this word, but the um, elite people, you know, all of the wealthy people, all of the smart people, the, his pick of, of them, and he took them to Babylon and, and there they were in captivity. And so that's where we're picking up the story this morning. They are far from Jerusalem, they are without their temples, they are without their sacrifices, they are unable to sing the, the songs of Zion. And so when we look in scripture, we find ourselves in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not often that we hear preaching from Ezra and Nehemiah. It's not one of those go-to books in terms of Sunday sermons. It's not, um, you know, when you're reading New Testament and you're reading Jesus' teachings, there's lots of books in the Old Testament that are 
specifically referred to. Ezra Nehemiah is not one of them. But there's lots. I want to encourage you to look look at it because there is actually a lot here for us to learn. Um, we are, when I no, I won't worry about that. Um, when I'm saying, I just want to explain why I'm saying Ezra and Nehemiah and not the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And the reason I'm putting them together is because in our in our modern Bibles they're separate, but originally in the uh, Hebrew manuscripts they were together. And that's because and most biblical scholars believe that they should be read at the very least in conjunction with each other, volumes one and two, because it's the same story running through. So I apologise. I'm not trying to confuse anyone when I refer to them as Ezra and Nehemiah because it's it's one story, two parts of of one story. But what I want to do this morning is we're going to read so you can open your Bibles if you have them on your phone or there are a couple over there if you wanted to grab one. We're going to read the, together the first chapter of the book of Ezra and then I'm going to kind of zoom back to 40,000 feet as it were and have a look at the big picture because what I want us to focus on this morning is the end of the book. So we're going to start with the beginning and we're going to end with the end because it is um, an unusual ending. But I believe there's something very powerful in the ending that God has for us. So shall we read together? Before we read, I'm going to pray. So Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth and I thank you that we have it now as, as our guide. And Holy Spirit, I ask as we read together that you would come and that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds to hear what you are saying through these books this morning. Amen. Okay. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved on the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to also put it in writing. Now, just, I'm going to stop. I won't stop all the time, but I'm just going to stop there because that just seems, when we read it, that just seems like it might be just a nice introduction to the guts of what chapter one is going to be about, which is the decree of Cyrus. But there's actually, there's actually quite a lot there that would have given or should have given the people of God hope. So there's actually a, a couple, at least two, if not more, prophecies fulfilled in those few words. There's one that's clearly spoken about there, the, the, the prophecy in Jeremiah, which is that the, the people of God would return to Jerusalem. So that we see fulfilled. But there's another one that... Um, if you remember Isaiah, so some 147-odd years before this point in time and 80 years before Cyrus was born, Isaiah prophesied that it would be Cyrus that allowed the people of God to return to Jerusalem. So it's kind of setting the stage. So they would have had, the people of God would understand this and they would have had that in their minds and they would have had a hope in knowing that, a hope for what was to come. So we start this story with a hope that, and a sense that God is a God of his promises, that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do. And so that's really hopeful as we start this story. 
And it's really hopeful for them then to go on and think, well, not only is he fulfilling this prophecy, but then that means we can trust him with other prophecies. And we can even perhaps believe again or hope again that that we might become a forgiven God's people who become the epicenter of God's kingdom in the world and that maybe we will see the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed. So that's kind of where they might be after this first verse, but we will read on. Um, This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved. Now, you may notice here that they only refer to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, just so you... You probably already know, but just so that you are aware, previously the other 10 tribes had been northern tribes and they had been taken captive by the Assyrians. And so where at, this to- at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, there were two tribes remaining in the south, Judah and Benjamin, which is why there are two tribes mentioned here. The priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Midradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory, gold dishes 30, silver dishes 1,000, silver pans 29, gold bowls 30, matching silver bowls 410, other articles 1,000. All in all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shezbazar brought all of these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. If we go on reading, which we're not going to, you will see that there's a a great big long list of the people who came, who went in this first um, wave. When I was reading this for the first time, you get the sense that, hang on, they, were, they would have been filled with so, such hope. And we're at this turning point and we're going home. We finally, after all these years of exile, we're going home. Someone has let us go home. We're going back. We're going to rebuild the temple. It's amazing. So you would think, right, that they would all be like, yeah, take me. I'll go. And yet... That's not what happened. If you read on, you'll find that 42 of, there was only about 42,000 of them that went. And there would have been many, many more than that in Babylon at that time. And so not everybody went. And so then my question was, well, why? Why would they not have gone? And 
we don't find the answer in scripture, but if you have a, you know, if you have a little think, there can be a number of, there could be an, a number of reasons why. I mean, they were there for many, many years, and for some of them, um, it was the only place they'd known. So maybe they were comfortable, maybe the unknown was hard. Change is hard. Troy mentioned it before, and it's true. Change is hard. And so they would have been in the back of their minds. Maybe they were just comfortable. You know, when they went, they were told to assimilate. When they first were taken captive, they were told to assimilate. And so they had, and maybe they'd done that really well, and they really didn't want to, the upheaval and all that came with that. Maybe they realized that it would be hard work. Rebuilding is hard work. And maybe they just decided they weren't up for it. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. There are many reasons why it's possible, but the, the reality is that only, only 42,000 went in that first wave. And I say the first wave because if we look, if we, as we read through Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that there were three waves of return to Jerusalem. It wasn't just one wave. There were three waves um, over the course of about 100 years, each led by a different but equally passionate leader. First was Zerubbabel, 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 him. (laughs) When you're nervous and you're speaking and you have to say Zerubbabel, it doesn't come out easily. First, it was that guy, um, and he went to rebuild the temple. And then about 60 years after him, Ezra, who was a teacher and a scribe, he went to, uh, to teach the Torah, to rebuild community and reestablish the covenant with God's people, that they would be covenant people again. Uh, and then after that, Nehemiah returned and, and completed the building with the building of the city walls. And as we read these stories, as we read these three stories, we find that there are similarities in all three of them. They all start with a decree and the favour of the king. So for Zerubbabel, um, it was Cyrus. For the other two, it was Artaxerxes. But they start with a decree or permission from the king. They start with his favour. They start with him giving them resources to go, all of which is, you know, amazing. Then what happens is that uh, some people choose to go and then they get there and they do some building, they run into some opposition and then there's some disappointment because things aren't quite as they thought or as imagined they might be and so there's all of this uh, kind of uneasiness in the middle but then eventually things get rebuilt. And it's good or at least it looks good. There is a time, once all the the buildings have been built, there's a time of teaching from the Torah. Ezra speaks to the community. There is spiritual renewal. Feasts are had and observed. It looks like this is it. It's all been building to this pinnacle that we, they must have been thinking, we are here. The great restoration of God's kingdom when the forgiven people of Israel will become people of the new covenant is about to be here. But that's not what happens. As you read on, you will find that yet again, the people of God fall away from his covenants. It didn't take long. 
Nehemiah was doing a tour of the city and in every aspect of the rebuilding, he found people had turned away from what they were called to. He found people in the fields working on the Sabbath. He found people disrespecting and neglecting the rebuilt temple. He found people had even set up stalls on the rebuilt walls and and were selling things on the Sabbath. And so he loses it, basically. He gets really angry and is yelling and screaming and pulling people by the hair. And um, (laughs) it's really weird. And he ends in prayer saying, God, have mercy on me. Remember me because I tried. And then the story ends. So it's this really weird anti climax. You know, if it were a book and someone asked you to describe it, you might say, yeah, it was really great. It started with such, had such high hopes and expectations and it was really good. And then we thought we were building and then it just ended really, really strangely. So when that happens, my question to God is, okay, so this is not an accident. You've put this story here for a reason. There's something that you want us to learn. What do you want us to see? What do you want us to hear? What do you want us to take away? And what we see, if we look in this, is that they went home and they rebuilt the buildings, but they didn't allow their hearts to be restored. So they'd restored the physical temple, they'd restored the walls, but they hadn't, they'd even restored their relationship to the law to a certain extent, but they hadn't allowed their hearts to be transformed. They'd spent 50, 70 years in exile and they still hadn't allowed God to completely transform their hearts. You know, we find in Jeremiah in chapter 31, there's the new covenant where the law will be written on their hearts all those years in exile to think about it. And they, it hadn't happened. So at the and when we get to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, we find rebuilt and restored buildings, but we don't find rebuilt and restored hearts. And I feel like that's what God was pointing to me. You know, coming coming home to the promised land was good. It was great. But really, it was just an image of a deeper lesson, of something more that God was showing them then and is showing us now. And that's what I feel like he wants us to see today, that we need something more, that we needed, they needed, and we need someone more. For that new covenant to be fulfilled and God's kingdom to come and all nations to be blessed, we need transformed hearts. We need, they needed God to enter to the story by way of his son, Jesus. So this Old Testament scripture is doing what Old Testament scripture does and is pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to our need for Jesus. Jesus took the price of our sin and restores us to intimacy with God. That's what they needed and it's what we need today. So back to my story of home for a moment. So we traveled south 
And I have lived in Sydney ever since. I have gradually become used to living in Sydney. But one of the funny things that I have experienced is that uh, for the first 26 years of my life, I had one home, and it was Shaw. For the most recent 23, 24 years of my life, I have lived in seven homes. So you can do the maths on that. We, um, we haven't stayed in one place very long, which is not bad. Uh, it has been unsettling at times, but we have always felt God's hand on our lives. We have always felt God go ahead of us and give us a place to live. Some of those places we've owned, some of those places we've rented, but we have always felt him there. And so looking back on that, looking back on the story, that, my story that I've shared with you today, I can see a physical reflection in my life of what God has done spiritually in my life. As he has been calling me home to him, he calls me home to him regardless of where I live physically, regardless of my physical circumstances. He wants me to find my home. He wants you to find your home in him. And from that place, everything else works. You know, even, even this week, a number of times this week, I have been reminded that my everything comes from him. When I am without, when I am in need, when the desires of my heart are not being answered by the world around me, I know and I'm reminded that I find my very essence, I find my anchor in him. He is my home. Our physical homes are important, but our home in him is really what he's calling us to. We were meant for home. He created us for home. He put us in Genesis. He created and he put us in a home. But then sin happened and we were banished from our home, living, mankind, living in exile until we receive a final restoration and we are restored home. So then our, our task today is to work out how we live in this place but find our home in him. And the answer to that is Jesus. He paid the price so that we could come home. He opens the door to Father's home where he has prepared a place for us, where our deepest desires are met, where we are welcomed, where we are loved, where we are known, where we are valued. That's what Jesus does in our lives. So among all of the other amazing things that you will find in these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, at this turning point, we find that what we really need in our lives is to come home to Jesus, come home to God and find our place there. So I'm going to ask us to, to stand and we are going to pray and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. You know, there were some things as Maddie and I were praying and, um, about this morning that he had this word, 
Home is where the heart is. So if anyone, if that fits for anyone this morning, then come and get prayer. And I also wanted to ask you a question, and that is, do you trust God? I mean, yes is going to be your answer, but I want you to look deeper than that. I want you to ask, do you trust God's story for your life? Do you trust him with everything? Or have your hearts hardened and have, have you tried to do it yourself? I'm going to ask us this morning, if that's you, to just lay your heart before God and ask that he would come and, and fill you anew. Ask the, that the Spirit would come and transform your heart to receive God, to receive his plans. And the other thing I felt was if you are feeling isolated and exiled and out of, out of place in this world, as I do often, <laughs> then come because God has a way for you. He wants you to come home to him and find your place in him. So I'm going to stop talking now and I'm going to pray. And if, but if anyone has any words, like it's not about me. It's if you, if the Lord is speaking to you, if you have words, then come forward and, and we would love to share them because they may well bless someone else as well. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are home, that we feel home when we are with you. No matter what our physical circumstances, Lord God, we don't rely on them to know that we are home. We put our trust and our faith in you, and we are at home in you. Jesus, I can't, I, we come and I ask that you would reveal that to us again anew this morning. That you would speak deeply to our hearts. I thank you for your word, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and be amongst us. We're just going to sit here just a couple of minutes longer. Allow the Spirit to keep speaking. sense for some of us this kind of idea of, of home being with Jesus like there's so much going on in our lives so much change so, so much we don't know and understand and this idea of home with the Lord he's just like yes that's, that's me that's what I want that's what my heart's yearning for I just want to, just to encourage you to bring that before the Lord Uh, I really, on that, I really sense the Lord saying, return to me. Return to me. And uh, I think for some, I, I know um, we're all in this place from time to time. There's a moment here just to come and actually 
repent, turn back to the Lord, to turn around from running away, to be that prodigal son, daughter. And so let's just take a moment. You might know that's you this morning, and you need to just take that moment just to turn and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been running away from you. And I, call, I hear your call, I hear your, your father's song calling me home. And I'm coming home. Lord, just take me as I am. I've got nothing else. I'm completely broke without you. Spiritually poor. And I just sense that the father wants to speak the words that he speaks over us as we come home. You are my son, you are my daughter. I'm going to place on you sandals and a ring and a cloak. Give you the best that I have. Put on a feast and hold a party. Rejoice over you with singing. Come home to me. So if you know that's you this morning, let me invite you just to receive his love. By his Holy Spirit. We ask Holy Spirit you just wash over this place. Pour it out Lord. Thank you Lord. And I think just following on from what Rob was saying there. just um, Someone had a verse from Ezekiel 36. And I just feel like if that was you responding to what Rob was saying. I just feel like the Lord wants to. Speak this over you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's the Lord who does the work. We just need to bring ourselves. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I think, um, think we might bring the service to a close there, but I really...